it's my Bible. I believe it's God's word. Every word is true. And I know it's all I need. <laughs> right, okay. John chapter 2. And uh, last week, we, we, I hope you remember, John starts this in John chapter 1. He starts us by the first, first part of John 1. He says, I want to make sure you know who God is. I want to make sure you know who you are. And I want you to know how badly you need him to be your life and your light. And, and we saw um, how he picked his um, disciples and um, how he called them and how Nathaniel, just appreciate him. There's nothing false in him. I hope you thought about that. That, that is such a compliment when people can say there's nothing false, that they know your word is trustworthy. They know your yes is yes and your no is no, and they just know there's nothing um, nothing false. Like you're not going to talk so nice to somebody and then, and then talk bad when they turn their back. I mean, that's just ridiculous. I hope that we're catching ourselves, that we are real, that we're true, that we're authentic. We're the real deal. We're, we're letting the spirit change us and we're not what we used to be. I hope that that's something that you see in Nathaniel. And, and you know, he said to him, if you believe, because I said, I saw you under the fig tree, if, if you're believing me because I said that, then you've seen nothing yet. And really, um, he's saying that to you and me. If you think that this Bible study, if you think last week was good, or if you think this night's good, then he said, you've seen nothing yet. There's nothing you can ever get to the point where you think, oh, I've, that, there, it doesn't get any better. No, every week as you know him better, it gets better. And so tonight you're going to see that again. You're going to see it. So, okay, John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. So, now, did you stop and think about that? Say, hey, this wedding, Mary's invited, Jesus is invited, the disciples are invited, and weddings back then, I don't know if you checked it out, but weddings back then were a real party. They were a fun time. People had a blast at these and so, so often, don't you think that Jesus was, you know, you think, oh, I don't know, did he party? You know, did he have fun? You just don't think about your Savior really party. But he did. I got to tell you, um, I had a friend who, didn't I tell you that? I think I did. A friend said to me, we went out for lunch one day, and, and she happened to say to some of her friends that she went out with me for lunch. And one of her other friends said, what? You went with her? I bet you didn't have any fun. I bet she's so straight. I mean, she probably preached to you the whole time. You know, I mean... My friend was absolutely devastated that they thought that of me. But, you know, and she says, no, she's a lot of fun. You know, and I am. I'm just a blast to be with. <laughs> but 
sometimes when you love the Lord so much, you know, when Jesus is so special to you, then, you know, people have a tendency to think that you can't have fun. And here, this shows you, this shows you right clear that Jesus had fun. I have fun. You can have fun. There's nothing wrong with laughing and being at a party, but we're going to then find out there's a fine line. You know, so you got to start, start seeing that, yes, you can laugh and have fun. Jesus did. I, I would dare say that if we really looked at Jesus, we would have seen him smiling and laughing a lot more than what we, we perceived. He was full of joy. He was full of, um, he loved this lady. He loved this earth. He loved his people. And when you have joy just oozing from you, I mean, it shows on your face. And so I'm sure that he had a great time in life. He did, even though he took his job seriously. And so do I. And I'm sure so do you. But um, okay, then it says, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, have no more wine. And, and that was a major taboo. As, as parties then lasted, I mean, not just for an afternoon or evening. I mean, they went for days. And this is such a, 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 a bad thing because it is the job of that family to, to be hospitable and to be able to feed and, and have enough of everything for their guests. And, and when, I, when I read it, I found out that this could carry with this poor family for years. Like they would be, you know, people would be together and they'd say, oh, remember that wedding when they ran out? I mean, it would carry, it would carry through and they would never forget it because it was such a taboo. So, you know, I'm only telling you this because you, you got to see the importance when Mary, and we don't know um, if it was a relation or whether it's good friends, we have no idea, but she took it upon herself to go to Jesus and say, we ran out of wine. I mean, they, or they ran out of wine. They have no more. And he comes back with, dear woman, or just, or just woman, depending on your, your version. But, you know, right away, you, you, I had you go back and look in Matthew and see that, you know, this was not a disrespect. This was an endearing term. He, he said this to her um, for a big reason. Because now, uh, now he, you know, I told you that, you know, John the Baptist in first chapter, and then we see the, uh, the disciples in this, you know, in being called. And now on the third day, it's like the third day of his earthly ministry. It's kind of like, okay, well, you know, we're at day three. And his, his mother says to him, we have, they have no more wine. And he addresses her as woman. And again, you know, it is only because he wants to start separating this out. In fact, you know, Mary is, he will, she will always be his mother, but she will always also be one that needs a savior too. 
So now Jesus is coming in from the, the 40 years of being in the family, kind of, you know, carpenter, helping his mom. We don't know where Joseph is. We don't read here. Um, he could be gone. And so, you know, maybe Jesus has supported his mother and, and a lot of these. You can, you can think whatever you want. We don't know for sure. But, but now Jesus has come to start his ministry, and he is starting to call her um, woman. And so, you know, just kind of pulling back the, the, the homie ties and now is ready to venture out. And then he says, why do you involve me? Why do you involve me? You know, maybe he, maybe he was saying, what business is it of ours, you know? But he, you know, he knows that she knows. <laughs> he knows she knows. And, and as, as things are starting to change, she knows that he is the son of God. Yes, she bore him. But she knew already when the angel came that she would bear the son of God. And so she is now saying, as he is on the third day of his earthly ministry, and he says, my time has not yet come. Now it's time to die, and the cross has not come. What does he mean here? Does it mean from, from other passages he never did anything without asking his father? Everything Jesus did, he asked his father and so did he have to ask him first? What does that really mean? We don't know. But between verse three and four, between verse four and five, his mom, his mother knows that, that he is going to do something, and she makes a statement to the servants. And I had you look that up. I said, why does this statement why is this statement so good for, for uh, that Mary gives for you and for me too? Because what she says to those servants, whatever, whatever he tells you, you do it. Whatever he tells you. You think that's a good statement for you and I? I mean, whatever he tells us. You know, and, and the thing is, did you notice that there was no question in the servants when, he, when, the, when Mary said, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. There's no, like, you know, there stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. I mean, that's heavy. And so when Jesus tells them to fill the jars with water, you know, do you see them ask any questions? Do you see them saying, you know, that really, they're kind of heavy and I don't really think we're able to do it and what good is it gonna do? Uh, we're out of wine, we don't need water. I mean, you know, there's, there's so many human things that they could have said here. You know, and isn't that us when, when we know the Lord's um, asked us to do something and we come back and we come up with excuses or, you know, um, that doesn't make sense to me or, you know, I don't think that's a good idea. I mean, we, we say that. When Mary says whatever he says, do it. No questions, no debate, no doubt. You just do it. So major line in there. Major line for you and me. 
and he's saying that whatever he whatever he says, you do it. So anyway, nearby, okay, stood these six stones, stone jars, and Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. Now, with water. You know, why water? You know, why fill them with water? Because we know that, you know, um, he could have right away made them wine just like that. So he filled them. So they filled them to the brim. They filled them to the brim. Now, <laughs> I'm hoping by now you're starting, when you read it every day, something will jump at you. And one day for me was to the brim. You know, why to the brim? I mean, why not, you know, fill it three quarters? Because I'm sure these are heavy pots and we got to move them and they'll slosh over and, you know, it's a waste of water. And, you know, again, so much excuse and debate and they filled it to the brim, to the top. Now, why do they fill it to the very top? Why does the Spirit, why is it we need to be filled with the Spirit? Why do we need um, the fullness of the armor, put on the full armor of God, the full armor, the full Spirit, full to the brim? If you're full to the brim, what more can you get in? Nothing. When you're filled with the Spirit, what more can get in? Nothing, you know, and I'm thinking, there's, there's the thing right there. When you're filled, there was no way that anybody could say, because they filled it to the brim with water, there was no way that anybody could say, well, you know, we I'll put a little this and we helped out a little bit. You know, there was nothing more. There was nothing. You couldn't add anything more. There was no way anybody could take any credit for it. Because it was water right to the brim. When we are filled with the Spirit, there is no way self can get in there. There is, there is something to, if otherwise, if there was any, you know, the, remember we learned last week, the fullness of his grace. The fullness of his grace. Because if it was, if it was anything but the fullness of his grace, then there would be somebody who would try to say, well, then we did this to help things along. We've been saved only by his grace. Nothing we could have done. So that whole thing about being filled to the brim takes special meaning. When he does something, he does it. And we can't take any credit for any of the miracles he does in your life and my life, like saving us when we didn't deserve it or changing this water to wine. Now, um, I am going to, I debated so much. Of, do I go here or not? Do I go here? And I thought, yep, I'm going to. So I'm just going to go for a couple minutes because I think there's a fine line. We've been talking about that. We can have fun. We can have such a good time. And, and right there, you know, people just love this passage because it just gives them the excuse. See, Jesus drank wine, so we can do, you know. And then there's some that will say, well, you know, water was terrible back then. And the water was not good, so they had to drink wine. Or maybe it wasn't fermented. No, it was wine. And we know that it was because we read from later in the passage that they're used to 
they're used to drinking too much and then they don't even taste it anymore. So um, I thought, okay, I better, I'm going to address this because there is a fine line between fun and going too far and then sin becomes fun. And, and I'm just going to say here, what you do in your personal life is your business. Now, I'm not, I don't say it's a free license because it's between you and the Lord. And, and remember, um, we forget that the Lord knows, even though in the privacy of our own whatever, he, you think, oh, nobody knows, but he does. So I'm not saying whatever you feel is right to do between you and the Lord. That's your business, not mine. But what does happen when we are in a crowd, when we're with other people, we're starting to see that, that you know, if there's, there's many Christians that take the liberty of saying, well, you know, I don't see anything wrong with it, and, and um, I can do what I want, and I've been, you know, I'm, I'm free in Christ, and, and they just take these liberties, and they never look around, and they never see that maybe someone else has trouble. Maybe there's someone that does have a real problem with this. Maybe somebody can't for whatever reason. Maybe, maybe somebody thinks it is wrong. And so I'm going to tell you, I think it's worth the time. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 14. And I want you to hear what Paul says. And, and um, starting with verse 19. Chapter 14 of the book of Romans. Paul says, let us therefore, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God. I hope you see that. He says, don't destroy the work of God for the sake of food or drink. Because maybe, and maybe it's not a problem for you, but maybe it is for someone else. And, and maybe if somebody would look at you and say, wow, I didn't think that's what Christians do. Maybe they, they, they're not a Christian yet. And in their mind, they perceive something and they look at you and you're destroying the work of God. You've got to consider when people are around. All food is clean. Paul is saying, you know, he's talking about the... Uh, uh, um, all kinds of kosher and all, you know, all the Jewish ceremonial things with food. He said, you know, since Jesus came, all food is clean, but it's wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. So remember that. Remember that. It is wrong. Even if it isn't to you, it is wrong if someone is watching and it causes them to stumble and you're destroying the work of God just because of that he says, it is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. So, um, you know, just throwing that out to you. Yep, it's, it's okay, okay, it's okay. Jesus did it. But you're going to see later that, yes, you can have fun. 
But there is a fine line when that fun time then turns into sin fun. And it then starts destroying God's work. People are watching. You're causing someone to stumble. And then is it really worth it? So, you know, yeah, am I pretty straight? You know, am I no fun at all? No, I'm a lot of fun, but I also know the fun line because I know that people are watching and, and I've worked too hard and so have you. I wear the name Christian and that means I've chosen to follow Christ. I wear Jesus' name. I'm a part of his family. Does that mean anything to us? We represent him. There's that fine line. And those, those phrases that Paul uses, do you really want to be responsible for the sake of having fun, of destroying the work of God or causing someone to stumble? I don't know if you are part of, if alcoholism hasn't affected you, maybe in your family, maybe someone you know, but it is real. It is a real problem. And, and I know for a fact that, that if I know someone is, is struggling with that problem, even though I might not struggle with that problem, if somebody that is right by me does, what kind of person would I be? What kind of heart do we have if we just, I mean, that's selfishness to the max. Like, I don't really care. That's your problem. I don't have it, so no. So anyway, that's, that's my two cents, and I think it is worth it because I found scripture for you to look at and just know that fun is fun, but there's a fun line before it starts becoming sin. And you know as well as I do, sin is a blast too. But, okay, um, now, then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Okay, take it to the master of the banquet. <laughs> they did so. Now, I don't know, did this go through your mind? I thought, did they take a sip on the way? You know, (laughs) maybe I'm just really bad. I don't know. But, you know, you wonder, but uh, they did not. Servants, you know, they did what they were told. They did so. The master master, um, is ready to take it. It said the master at the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. And he did not realize where it had come from. He did. See, the master, he didn't know. He didn't know. He didn't, he, maybe he didn't even know that they ran out. Maybe he didn't even know, you know, how the whole thing about the pots and the water to the brim. He didn't know the whole story. All he knew is that what he tasted was so much better than any of the other that they had had. But then look at this. It says, he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. They know that they filled those pots, 20 to 30 gallons worth of water to the brim. They know. They saw the water go in there. And they know that by the time they took that over to the master... The servants, the servants knew. Then he called the bridegroom. The master called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first. The cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. See, now, I didn't like that verse one bit. (laughs) I did. 
And I think that's what, that when I got to that verse, that's when I knew that I was going to say something. Because they were having a fun time, the first two verses, right? And, you know, then this party turned the fine line corner. And all of a sudden now, now they've had too much. And, and you know, I mean, if you know of anything of drunkenness at all, people don't know what they're saying. They don't know what they're thinking. They don't know what they're doing. And I know if my brother came in here right now, I know my, my brother would say, because this is his testimony, he said it breaks his heart now to think that he did things that he never knew he did. He did things he would say to me, he says, when we'd see somebody else later after he, he, he's been sober for over 30 years, and he would say to me, he says, did I act like that? And I said, yeah, I'm afraid so. He says, man, I mean, he, they didn't, you don't even know. You don't know what you're saying, what you're doing. You don't know how you're acting. When you don't have control over yourself, and remember, we've done that with the fruit of the Spirit. When you don't have the Spirit controlling you, itself is in control, and then you put, you put booze on top of that. You can't expect anything good to happen here. And so when I got to that verse, I didn't like it one bit because I thought, see, there's your proof that it can turn really quick. When fun can turn into a problem. And this familiar story, because you and I, we've known this story, and, you know, it's such a miracle. God, Jesus' first miracle, he turned the water into wine, and, and we know that. But there was so much in this passage, so much more that we could apply to our lives and take lessons from. He said, but you've saved the best till now. And then my smile came back because you know what I thought when that line says, you've saved the best till now. I'm thinking, isn't that Jesus? It is Jesus. He always turns. He always, every day, you remember last week we talked about these blessings that we should appreciate more every day, like chosen and forgiven and redeemed. And um, you should appreciate and love those even more every day. He said, then you're going to find you have a better life every day. The more you know Jesus and what he's done for you, and you acknowledge that more and apply it more every day, and it changes you more every day, you will have a better day. And not only is every day better with Jesus, that doesn't mean every day is, is, goes our way and we're never sad again, but when we know Jesus and grow and mature in him, it gets better and better. You learn how to hang on and get through the ups and downs of life. And then the best is yet. How do you know that the best is yet to come? What does Revelation tell you? What is your word to see in John 14, too, when Jesus says, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you unto myself, that where you, where I am, there you will be also. That sounds pretty good to me. And in Revelation, in Revelation 21, just know that we'll be a part of the new heaven and the new earth. Well, there'll be no more crying, no more mourning, no more sadness, no more pain, no more parting. The best is yet to come. And so when Jesus turns, see, I think this whole turning water into wine, I think, I think it is such a, a conversion, conversion experience here. 
He takes just the plain old water and he turns it into something. He turns it into wine. And then, and then one day I was just, it had been a hard weekend. I was just kind of sitting there and I just laid my head back and I thought, Lord, there's got to be more of this whole thing of turning water to wine. There's got to be, there's, and then all of a sudden, my mind started filling with things like, you know, well, the whole Old Testament, remember, it's all, it all pertains to Jesus. And, and the whole thing with Moses and the plagues. What was the first plague when, when um, Moses said the first plague will be turning water to what? To blood. Turn water to blood. And we know that the blood is, the, it all centers around the blood. And then I thought, okay, but what does that have to do with turning water to wine? And then I went back to Matthew 26. I went back because I remember we'd just done it. And I remember Jesus saying, and we, we, every time we have communion, we read these words. But I thought to myself, I jumped off my chair. I thought, this is it. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for you. Many for the forgiveness of sins. He is saying to them that you will now do this instead. You will, you will drink of this cup. You will drink of the grape juice or the wine. Did you know that Welch's grape juice was, was um, made for communion for people with trouble? with wine. I didn't know that. I didn't know that Welch's did that. They somehow took the ferment out of there so they could have the actual true vine experience, just like Jesus said, but without the alcohol in it. So anyway, that's just a little sideline. But um, the thing is, I thought, oh, you know what? What do we, when we take the wine or the grape juice, what is that a symbol of? What do we drink? Jesus said, you're drinking as a remembrance of what? The blood that was shed, that was shed for you so you could be saved. And I thought, whether it's the plague from turning the water to blood or whether it's the water turned into wine, it all really has to do with the blood of a Savior who then now has taken the sins of the world, like John the Baptist said. Here he comes, the one who takes away the sins of the world. Don't you think that's exciting? I think it really works. It's not just Jesus turned the water to wine. This is a story about you and me. This is a story of what Jesus did. And this is his first, the first sign of his, of his earthly ministry. And look what it is. It all pertains to what? His blood. So, so much to this story. And the best is yet to come. And you know what? The enemy of your soul, you know what he tries to tell you? He's, he tries. And I'll tell you, unless you are really on a step-by-step -step walk with your Savior, you buy into this. Because you hear it all the time. You only live once. Do you ever hear that? In other words, you only live once, so live it up now. I mean, this is what we hear. And now I'm, I'm more aware. I'm thinking, that's the devil lying to me, telling me that the best is right now. See, that's what happened. They, they, they drink like, like sieves first with all the good. And then they brought in the cheap stuff because they didn't know anyway. And isn't that typical of the enemy? Live it up now. But then you've done so much damage to yourself, you don't even realize it. <laughs> 
You're probably saying, boy, you sure took off on that story. But I did. There was, to me, there was a lot to that story. And to me, it's so personal because I think now, instead of Jesus just turning that water to wine, it is exactly what he does to you and me. He takes the old, because remember, what is water baptism? What do we talk about? It's a symbol of our demonstration of what we've done. And you go down in the water as a sinner, and you come out as cleansed. You go down in your old self, and you come out new in Christ. See, all of that has to do with what Jesus did on that first sign that he, it all pertains to what he came to do for you and me. This is the first of his miraculous signs. Jesus performed at Canaan, Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. So why did he do this? I mean, first of all, of course, I think he, he wanted to make sure, you know, he's starting out, and people don't really know who he is yet, and he's going to have to do a lot of miracles. He's going to tell parables. He, he's going to be doing a lot to what? Prove his glory. Prove he is who he is. And he also wanted to take 12 disciples that had been good Jewish boys, but, you know, they've learned from, from the Old Testament, and now he's got to convince them because he knows that 11 of them are going to go out into all the world and bring the gospel to it. And he knows that he better get them convinced because you can't sell what you don't believe in. You can't possibly sell your product if you don't believe it's any good. And so already now he's starting to make sure that they know, that they start to realize who he is and put their faith in him. So there's the, there's the first story. And then John puts this story in the same chapter. So after this, he went down to Capernaum, and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, there they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover... Now, Jesus um, had, you know, Passover was something that they did every year to what? Commemorate, to remember, to pass on, you know, can you imagine children, you know, when, the, when they would have the unleavened bread, you know, can't you imagine kids say, ooh, this doesn't taste good, you know, unleavened bread, I mean, they probably would say, or, you know, when, when they would do the sacrifice, and, you know, children are so honest, they'd probably say, well, you know, what's this, why do we do it this way? Well, what an opportunity to be able to explain it to them, and that was why God said to Moses, I want you doing this every year so that you have an opportunity to be able to tell this story of how God delivered the, the Israelites from the Egyptians. Tell them the story. And I think this is such, we have such opportunities because people have to know, are we making the most of every opportunities? I mean, you know, there are signs, and, and I know sometimes I get a, I get a little... Um, yeah, this is where you say, yeah, you really aren't fun. But, you know, I look at certain things like, you know, like churches nowadays have these, have these marquees, and they're all LED lights. I mean, they're really bold. And, and I think to myself, you know, what an opportunity, 
You know, like one time I saw on a sign, and I can't say, you know, I can't say that I like this one because I think, man, it said, you know, it's okay you're broken. Tacos break too, and we love them. I mean, I just couldn't understand when, you know, why don't you say, you know, it's okay you're broken. Come on in, and we'll show you how all the pieces can be put together. Because you know that there's so many broken people that are going by these marquees and they're seeing the big LED lights and they're, they're maybe in a real hopeless state and they wouldn't think of driving into the driveway. And so these marquees are there and it grabs their attention and it tells them, it tells them about, and you say, well, you know, I don't want to turn them off. That's not your place. You're in my place is to make the most of every opportunity and make sure that people hear the gospel. And the gospel is so powerful that it draws people in. We're witness of it in this book. People, if they're desperate, they will know I'm broken and this place is inviting me to find out how I can change all that. I'm saying you have to make the most of these opportunities. And when I was thinking this through with the Passover and why we had to, why they had to commemorate and then how the Passover was then turned into the Lord's Supper, why do we do that? And that, again, is to tell, to remind us and then tell the next generation, Jesus did that. He did that for you. He did that for me. It's our chance to be able to tell the story, and it's a story that needs to be told or no one's going to know it. And these opportunities are, are there, and I, I just personally think that we all have to take a look at every day and say, you know, am I making the most of my opportunity today? Because if you have a desire to want to serve him, and that's another thing I found him to the brim. I thought he wants us to love him to the brim. He wants us to serve him to the brim. He wants, he wants our all. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, there's, you know, if I just sit and ponder these words, how they can relate and how they can kind of convict me, am I making the most of every opportunity? Or am I so busy that I skirt around? You know, there's so many times, don't you think I'm so busy, I'm going to, oh, there's so-and-so, I better not. I'm going to go down another aisle because I don't want, I don't, this will be another half hour. <laughs> I'll, I'll never forget. Let me, let me just tell you about the one time I, uh, when I was asked to teach a Bible study at Warm Friend downtown, and uh, my first thought was, no, <laughs> you know, and, and of course, I come up with all these good excuses, and the excuse is really a nice way, because I'm, I'm too nice of a person to say, no, I don't want to, but if you come up with a nice excuse, then you don't look so bad, but the bottom line is, I really don't want to, and I didn't. And so I was just about ready to say, no, you know, I've really got a lot going, I really don't have time. And, you know, that's our big excuse all the time, right? Don't have time. Don't have time. And then it was just like the Lord grabbed me around the neck. And, and, I, and he, he put that whole, see, Moses and, and, and the Bernie Bush and Moses and the Red Sea. And that comes to my mind so often because Moses and me were so much alike. 
And you know, he came up with two chapters of excuses. And then finally, finally he said yes. And I always wondered, you know, what he thought when he watched that Red Sea separate, when he stood and said to the people, you know, we've got Pharaoh's army coming in front of us and, and we've got, um, or coming behind us and we've got the Red Sea in front of us. It looks like a hopeless, you know, he didn't know how God was going to do it. But by this time, he just knew who his God was. And he said, let's watch the deliverance of the Lord. Like, we're all in this together. Let's see how he's going to do it. And then the water separates. Did you ever wonder what he was thinking when he watched that? Did he ever think, man, look at all the excuses. Am I ever glad that he didn't let me go? And I said, nope, can't do it. Look what I would have missed. Don't you ever wonder what, you would, what you've missed because of your flimsy excuses? I mean, you didn't want to serve him to the brim? Because you really don't, you really don't quite get how much he's done for you? And so anyway, I said yes, and it was just going to be a little six-week study, and it ended up to be three years. And, and it was because I went down my first week. Let me just tell you, my first week going down there, and I, I'm there early. I thought I was there early, but not for them. You know, they're there. They're there now early. And so they were all sitting around the table waiting for me to come, and I'm looking at them, and I said, you know, are we in the right room? I'm going to lead a Bible study. There was one Bible in that place. No one brought their Bible. I said, did you know there's a Bible study? Oh, yeah, we knew. We're here for that. I said, well, where's your Bible? Well, they looked at me like, how many hands do you think we have? You know, we got our walkers and our canes, you know? <laughs> and I thought, you got a good point there, you know? So I said, okay, wonder if I, wonder if I um, you know, put a hand out. How about if I, you know, hand, I'll give you a scripture and I will hand you out the papers. And they said, no, no, we can't even see that good. So, you know, it was, I was, I was cold turkey with this. But I knew, I, I just knew, I knew, I knew that it was going to be in one of those studies. And, and so um, I started, and I started reading, like, verse by verse, like I always do. And then we would stop, and I would talk to them, and they would talk to me. And, and there was, in the course of a few weeks, there was a gentleman. His name was Walter. And he was, he was um, uh, every week he would come early because he wanted to make sure that his wheelchair was right next to my chair. And he was such a cute man. He was 90 years old, and he sat right next to me. And every week he sat right there. And, you know, and this is when I could sing fairly well. And then I would sometimes sing and make a point. And so one day I was making a point and I started singing Amazing Grace. And, and, uh, and you notice, without, without looking straight at him, I could see Walter was trying so hard to get something out of his pocket. And he's had a stroke. So, you know, his one side doesn't work too well. And he was working. I thought, what is he trying to get? And I don't want to embarrass him, but I want to help him. And then all of a sudden, he, it came. All of a sudden, he, it was his hanky. And he, he had to get his hanky out. And then I noticed he was wiping his eyes and his nose is running and... And afterwards, he was kind of embarrassed, you know, a typical man, you know. He, he was kind of embarrassed that he was such a blubbering, you know. And he, he said, he said, I don't know what came over me. That song just gets to me. And I said, oh, Walter, I said, of course it does. Every day, that every day, you should love it more. And then, and then when he saw that I wasn't embarrassed and he didn't have to be embarrassed, and he said to me, he says, ask me what my greatest day was. 
And, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm thinking, I'm sure it's a World War II story, and I really don't have the time. <laughs> you do think that. You think that when somebody says that, or when somebody's in the store, and you think, I got to cut down because they're going to talk to me too long, and I don't have the time. I'm so busy. And I'm thinking, okay, I love this man so much. I thought, you know what? Okay, I'm ready. I'm ready for the, I'm ready for the story, Walter. What's been your greatest day? And his answer was, today. I said, today? How come today? You know, you're in a wheelchair. And, and I know you just, you just lost the love of your life. And, and um, I know you used to be a big strapping, you know, man. And, and you could always do stuff. And now you can't hardly do anything. And, and I said, how come today is your greatest day? He said, because I'm that much closer to seeing Jesus. You know, when you, and I'm thinking, look what I would have missed. I'm telling Walter's story, and it was, it's wonderful, and he's a wonderful man. But I'm telling you, look what I almost missed. Because I thought I was too busy. And I think, you know what? When we, when we look here, this whole thing about remembering the Passover, remembering the Lord's Supper, are we missing opportunities to be able to tell the story of what Jesus has done? So in the temple, he, he came to, on the Jewish Passover. It was Passover time, and he, it was very important to him. Passover time was very important to him. And he went into Jerusalem to commemorate the Passover. And in the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. How many times have I mean, you thought that story and you thought to yourself, boy, is he hopping mad. I know I did. I, I'm sure I've even said that. Boy, is he mad. And I don't think Jesus was never out of control mad. In fact, I never saw this before. I never realized it before. It said that sometimes when you're mad, what do you do? You don't, you don't, you know, you go into this fit of rage. And there again, it takes over. And then so often you say what you don't mean and you do what you wish you hadn't done and all that kind of thing. And I thought, you know, look at this very next. So he made a whip out of cords. So he wasn't out of control. Look at, he stopped and he, I don't know how long it took him, but when you get out of control, what do people tell you to do when you're really mad? What? Take a deep breath and count to 10. You know, because so often we're impulsive and we're, then we're sorry. Now, he, he went into the temple and he saw, you know, what's so sad about it is where they were doing this. See, in all of the temple, as huge as it was, they kept one little, one little area for Gentiles. I mean, those dogs. I mean, they didn't want them in, in the good part. But in this little area, Gentiles could come. If they wanted to do their worship, they could come to this area of the temple. And boy, Jesus goes there and he finds the one little area, because you know what he thinks of Gentiles. You know what, you know, look at what we said in, in the first chapter of John. Look how many times, every, all. You know Jesus came for everyone. He came for all nations, all kinds of, all kinds of people. So he went in there and he saw that they were keeping the Gentiles out. And then he takes the time, and I'm sure he's thinking it through, and I don't think he hurt one animal. I don't think he whipped an animal. I don't think he, he touched a person. 
But do you think, because you, you think of the noise as, he, as he, um, he made a whip out of cords and drove all the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables. Do you think it was noisy? <laughs> was there anybody who didn't lift up their head and wonder what's going on? He just got their attention. It isn't this what Jesus does to us. He says, I got to get your attention. He loved his father's house. He loved this place, and he knew what, it was, what was happening here, and he had to get their attention, show them that they were off the track. He got their attention. He, there was noise. Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, now, remember, these Jewish young men, they knew, and they knew that David, King David, had written Psalm 69. They knew this psalm where David wrote, zeal for your house will consume me. Remember when we did David? Remember how one day he said, you know what? We're in our promised land. We're stationary now. God, you deserve a permanent place. He poured out his heart. He knew that God deserved this place. He had a zeal for God's house because it represented God's presence. And, and then, then, of course, Solomon is the one that built it. But we know that David came up with the idea, and he loved the Father's house. And so the disciples remembered this Old Testament psalm where David wrote, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? I mean, that wasn't a bad question. I mean, let's face it. You know, Jesus came in and you've got cattle and sheep going everywhere and you've got money flying all over. Tables are flipping over. And, you know, they're saying, you know, what, what right have you got? You know, what authority do you have to do this? And Jesus answered them. Don't you think, if you could see Jesus right now, don't you think he had a little smirk on his face? You know, because he knows, he knows, and you and I know what he means here. But he knows they're not going to know at all. But he had to say it. It is the truth. And he's starting the process, and he says, okay, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And the Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was of his body. And after he, raised from, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. You know, how often don't you study a lesson and you think, well, that's a good lesson. Uh, does it pertain to me right now? And then, you know, could be down the road, all of a sudden he brings it to recall and it's just what you needed. You know, they didn't have any idea what Jesus meant, but after the fact, then they remembered, oh, that's what he meant. Have you ever said that? When all of a sudden you're going through something and then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit brings back because you had taken the, the time and the desire to learn it and, and then he was able to help you recall it just when you need it and then you think, that's what he meant. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, 
many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. Now, when you read verse 23, you were thinking, good, we're on our way. Many people are believing. And then you read verse 24, and it stops you in your tracks because it says many believed. I mean, he was, he was performing these miracles. I mean, people were watching the lame walk, the blind see, children raised. I mean, they were seeing this. They were so taken by it. Oh, they were awed by this man. They believed be careful of that. Be careful of just getting caught in all the emotion and all the super thin, super, you know, the, just this superficial. You know, you, there's so, so much. There's so much superficial belief. You get so caught up in. But then look at verse 24. It says, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He wouldn't entrust himself to them. And, he, and it just says in the previous verse that, that, they, be, that they believed in. So, you know, what, what's wrong here? Oh, they believed, but they didn't believe enough to let it change their life. And he can see whether it's real or not, or it's just a bunch of emotion. And he knows that it's like the parable of the sower. He knows that you're just caught up in, in it all right now. But it's like the seed on, on, on rocky ground. And as soon as you go out and you get rocky experiences, you know, it never took root. And so it's shot. It never takes hold. You don't become doers of the word. You're just hearers. And you get all worked up about it. But it never takes root. And then it never really is a benefit to you. He can tell whether you really want this or not, and he will entrust himself to you. He didn't entrust himself to those people. He could tell that they were fake. He could tell that it was just surface, surface, superficial. He could tell that. He can see that in your heart and mind. I, uh had to um, read letters at um, the Melton funeral. I had to, Bonnie asked me to read um, her, her letter and, to, and her husband's letter. They wrote letters to their son. And she wanted me to read them. And she, uh, I read them, you know, and I read them to myself, and I thought, oh, there is no way. I mean, how much do you think? <laughs> you know, there is a limit to what I can do. And these thoughts went through my mind. And I'm sure for a lot of you, you think, you know, you're asked to do something. You think, no, I can't. You come up with all these excuses. And, oh, I'm highly emotional. And I could never make it through. And, and then, again, you know, when you know Scripture and the Holy Spirit does his job and you allow him to do his job, it isn't long before you realize that all of a sudden the verse that came to my mind was when Paul said, I can. I can do this. Through Christ, who will give me the strength. It was what she wanted me to do. She wanted, and then she didn't just say, read it. She says, and read it in the feeling, you know I meant it in. <laughs> and she does, and she means it. And I'm thinking, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, you just better be glad I get the words out, you know. And, and But it, it was something. And I, when I walked up there on that platform, and I had those letters, and I looked right at her, and I started to read. 
I knew that there is a difference in a heart and the Lord entrusts himself to you. There is no doubt in my mind that he entrusted himself to me for those five, 10 minutes that it took. It was not me. You know, I know, you know what you're capable of, but the Holy Spirit does in us what we can do for ourselves. And I, I listened and it was, a, it was like, a, it was my voice, but it wasn't me. And I put all the feeling that she wanted in there. There is a difference when you, when you, and, and because like Nathaniel, I go back to that. He knows when you're real. He knows when there's nothing false in you. He knows that you love a good time. He knows you're a lot of fun, but he also knows you know there's a fine line. Because you don't want to destroy the work of God, and you do not want to cause anybody to stumble, and you want your life to be a testimony. You wear his name, for crying out loud. You do not want to do anything that will hurt someone else for the cause of Christ. And you also want to prove that you can do all things through Christ who will give you the strength. A lot of times people don't know that because they really don't let him entrust himself to them. Because you really don't believe. There's the difference. When you really believe, he, he can't wait to entrust himself to you. But when you're just on the surface, when you're just wading in the water, but when you want to be an elephant that goes right into the depth of it and you want to learn all you can, you want to take a simple chapter like John 2 that you've known so well and you watch the Lord bring all these things out to you. He entrusts himself to you. That's an exciting way to live. And you don't want to miss what he's got for you. Because you're just believing halfway. You're just believing. You want, you want to keep your own life and you want to control it. You just don't dare surrender because you're afraid of what he's going to how and he's going to use you. Man, dear, love him to the brim. Dear, serve him to the brim. I mean, for, for me, this chapter says you'll never be sorry. And then it says... <laughs> The reason he didn't entrust himself to them is for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Boy, John, you just laid it out there. You reminded me again. I'm not fooling anybody. You know how you can really tell what kind, what kind of believer you are is how are you when you're by yourself with him? How are you when you, when you are just alone? How are you when, when you are just, when you hunger and thirst and you can't wait to get in, see what, what more he's got to teach you? That's when you can tell it has nothing to do with what kind of presentation you can make. It's, it's what, what's happening in your heart? What's he doing to you? Are you excited about what you see in the mirror? You know he's entrusted himself to you because you've desired to want to know. Because he can tell. <laughs> he can tell. So, the first part of this chapter, if you really want to see it in two parts, I mean, it's divided into two parts. I mean, I think you can see that, that um, and I asked you a question about the second part. I said, why... Why did he have to go into that temple and clean it out? 
because they, they were starting to use the temple for wrong purposes. Now, now that we know that, that we, where is the temple of God right now? When, you, when you've come to the cross of Christ, it is within us, exactly. Once you come to the cross of Christ, the Holy Spirit now takes residence. You've heard that phrase. He takes residence within your heart. That means he is, you are the temple of God's spirit. You now are God's temple. Now, the first part is your conversion. Now, he changes you from what you used to be. You once were lost and now were found, you know. second part is, unfortunately, um, that temple needs to get cleansed again because I wish that once we went to the cross of Christ, we, we stayed wearing that white, that brilliant white robe of righteousness, and it stayed brilliant white. But in Revelation, it says that we have to wash our robe even though it's the white robe of righteousness, then we have to wash it. And why do we need to wash our white robe every now and then? Why does our temple need to get cleansed? Why does he need to make a robe out of cords and kind of get our attention and say, I got to clean you out. I need to cleanse you because self gets in there. You're not filled to the brim with his spirit. You're not filled with the, and put on the full armor of God. All the enemy needs is a little space, and then self gets in the way, and then that white robe it gets dulled and stained with sin and with self, and it's got to get cleaned out. It's got to get cleansed. It's got to get rewashed. So this chapter is very personal. It is your and my conversion, and it's your and my cleansing. Because we need to stay cleansed before him. And we can be glad he takes his whip of cords, or however he does to get your my attention, so that we can get re-cleaned, so we can get re-fortified and renewed, and that that white robe is sparkling, and that we wear the radiance of our Savior and make the most of every opportunity because the days are running short. And someday we will stand before him. We will stand before our Savior who did all that for you and me. And what are we going to say to him? What are we going to be able to hand him? It's all the things that we have done in our body after our salvation. It's either it's going to go through the fire and it's going to come out as ash if it was done for our own self-glory. But all of our works, if what we did in our body after our salvation, it was all him. Our motive was all for him. We served him to the brim. That's going to come out as precious stones. So the question is, someday when we see him, because we will, what are we going to hand him? He's going to extend those outstretched nail-scarred hands to us. We're going to see the nail prints, and we're going to realize what he did. What are we going to offer him? Oh, we'll get her till we have our ticket. We've been to the cross, but what did we do with our salvation? Did we work it? Or we were too embarrassed, or we had too many excuses, or we were too busy? And are we going to hand him a bunch of ash? Or are we going to hand him precious stones, which is 
our works that we did to the brim because he deserved it. That I found all in this one chapter. <laughs> and I think, I think I was thrilled because I needed to hear and be reminded of this. Heavenly Father, we know your word is alive and we know you will apply what we need. We know maybe I just needed so much out of this chapter this week because my life needed to be cleansed. Maybe I needed to be reassured. Maybe I just had to be reminded how you changed water to wine. You changed my, my old lost nature and you saved it and made me new. Instead of hell, I have heaven. Instead of hopeless, I have hope. Oh, I just thank you so much. And I just needed to be reminded. And then I know that self gets in the way and all my excuses get in the way. And I know you don't deserve that. And so I need to be reminded. I thank you that this lesson showed me it all has to do with the blood of our Savior who is willing to shed it for each and every one of us. Lord, and then our reward, you will entrust yourself, your very self to us. You live within us. We are the temple of your spirit. And as you entrust yourself to us, you will show us the way. You will give us purpose and worth. You will give us life worth living. And we thank you this, this very night for all what you have done in Jesus' name. Amen.